Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jagdish Singh Daliwal, or Jag as he's known to his friends. Jag is a Melbourne-based family doctor and medical advisor in healthcare technology. His interest lies in the leadership task of opening up mindsets and encouraging innovation. You're very welcome to the show, Jag. It's delightful to have you having a conversation. You and I are friends, but it's very nice that we're able to talk formally on this occasion. Brilliant. Thank you very much. We're delighted to be here. There are many things about your story that I'm not clear about. And one of the things is what got you involved in healthcare? <laughs> um, so my three kids are all teenagers now. My daughter just turned 13, so she's officially a teenager. And, and it makes you reflect back to when, when I was their age. And um, you know, I, I really did want to, to do something in the world. So healthcare seemed to be a way of really combining a passion to do something that I, I hoped would be useful and something with meaning, work with meaning and purpose, um, and also something that would in be intellectually stimulating as well. Um, and it was that, um, you know, as much as the Royal College of GPs in the UK has the, um, you know, the, uh, the uh, insignia, um, come caritas, um, sorry, come scientia caritas, so with science caring. I, I thought that really encapsulated what it is that I wanted to do in my life. Um, but, if, but of course, you know, um, what's interesting is you, you go into medicine with all those lofty ambitions and then you hit your 20s and then you hit the hard reality of life, uh, you know, working in the healthcare system. Um, and that was interesting because I think I'd, I'd figured out at that age that it wasn't a lack of anything in my medical training that was an issue. It was actually something to do with systems and design and leadership that, that really needed attention. And that's, I think, why I got interested in healthcare design, healthcare leadership. So talk a little bit about general practice. Why general practice? Because you could have gone into almost any other field of medicine. Yeah, well, um, there's a there's a flippant answer, which is um, yeah, I, I think I did okay at med school. Um, I only failed one exam at med school, and that exam was general practice. <laughs> I actually did quite well in some of the speciality exams, and uh, that really knocked me. I'm not used to failing exams, and and um, and actually, the 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 part that um, that, that restymed me was. Um, <clears throat> We did problem-based learning, and it was just being able to think through, uh, you know, the potential scenario, being able to think through the, this per, this patient's experiences in terms of physical, scientific, and, and social. Um, and and that, that, that piqued my interest, I think. And also, you know, I think probably like a lot of us, to have mentors, uh, tutors who are, who are inspiring, and actually the general practice team at, at my medical school, Leicester, were, were absolutely fabulous. Um, and, and, and I really like this idea of being able to understand medicine in its breadth. I like the idea of continuity of care and also really being that linchpin in terms of um, one of my colleagues talks about the general practitioner the family physician being like the master craftsman the person that that, that, that pulls in expertise be that from other medical specialities or from allied health or from nursing and tries to really sit and coordinate all of that uh, you know that's our central role and that really appealed to me so this, you're describing very much the NHS as you and I both knew it, because I, like you, trained in the NHS in the UK, and it was very much that. It was uh, cradle to grave. It was, it was continuity of care. There was multidisciplinary care. And there was all a variety of 
options available to us, which are not available to us in many other parts of the world. So talk a little bit about your journey in the NHS, because the NHS in the 1980s and 90s was in its heyday, but it's rapidly gone from that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I'm probably unusual in terms of Australian general practitioners, because I didn't move here because I was unhappy. Um, I moved because my wife, who works in, a, in another field, she had a job opportunity and she persuaded me over a, a, a bottle of wine one day that we would move to Australia. And I, and I, I thought this was a great way of having a midlife crisis. So um, I haven't actually emigrated because I was unhappy there. Um, in fact, there were many aspects of my practice that um, uh, I, I would probably miss. But so I, I think I'm probably in a position where I can see advantages and disadvantages of the UK system and the Australian system. I, I think it's Morgan who talks about metaphor in organisations. He says that, uh, you know, organisations, if, if you think about metaphors, a metaphor is a way of seeing in a way of also not seeing. And, and that's probably true of healthcare systems. That, you know, healthcare systems allow you to see and, and engage with issues and problems in, in particular ways. But because of the choices you make, they tend to then close down doors as well. And I think that's what I, I notice in terms of being in Australia and being in the UK. So being in Australia has opened up certain doors, it's closed certain doors. I think in the UK, the system opens up certain doors and certain doors are closed because of the way that, that healthcare is set up and designed. So you saw a lot of change in the NHS over the years that when you first started out in practice, what particular did you notice was the evolution of the NHS into into 2000 and beyond? Okay. Um, so so the one, one thing I think I've noticed is um, uh, the global financial crisis had a huge impact, um, you know, obviously globally, um, but particularly in the UK around public finances. Now, that that was um, and still is having ripple effects, and huge, massive ripple effects in terms of um, uh, damage, I think, to the service. But, you know, in, in an interesting way, Moyes, it also uh, was a burning platform that allowed innovation to, to, to spring forth. So, for example, for years, I, I remember banging on about um, trying to get things like electronic prescribing up and running, um, trying to ensure that we had open access to patient records. And um, this would go up to the various committees. And in, in the bureaucracy that is, NA, in, is the NHS, you would hit a, a brick wall. Um, and very interestingly, after 2008, suddenly these things became you know, uh, things that we could put into practice. So e-prescribing is, is just what we do. Whereas in Australia, I'm still sitting and signing prescriptions. Things like um, patient access to your full medical record, you know, we, we have uh, pockets of that, certainly through my health record, but the functionality isn't as good as, as I had in my UK practice because, you know, we, again, have made complete access you know, a pinnacle of our um, of our service, the cent centre point of our service. So, so I, I think it's probably aspects such, such as those. Um, so, certainly the, the funding and the funding cuts. I, you know, I talk to my UK friends and colleagues. You know, that's that's really you know hitting the, the service hard, but it's also allowed innovation. And I find in Australia, you know, we, we face the same. Um, uh, healthcare challenges in terms of uh, an aging population, you know, increasing, um, uh, you know, uh, increasing morbidities. Um, but the issue is maybe here because the funding is actually quite good. Maybe we're in a bit of a slowly boiled frog situation, where you know those those um, those those environmental changes are happening subtly, and so maybe there isn't that impetus um, to, to 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 make radical change happen. Do you think patients notice a difference? I mean, I, when I talk to my family and friends from the UK, they say things are quite different. My doctor doesn't know me as much as 
uh, they did in the 1970s and 80s. Home visits are not such a big part of the way that doctors practice. And doctors are spending a lot of time filling forms and collecting data because data clearly is what's driving the NHS in the name of efficiency and in the name of performance enhancement, etc. What do you think happened there? Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting one. <clears throat> I can probably draw my own practice experience. So I think some of the um, key ideas that probably have had an impact on the NHS and particularly general practice um, were ideas around, I think, sort of um, um, high volume, uh, rapid uh, rapid servicing of patients. And so things, for example, such as the walk-in centres. Um, now, I think there's certainly a place for that, but, but, but I think that idea almost took hold and 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 frankly i i i think that's that's completely erroneous um and in fact my own practice adopted a very different model which was that um <clears throat> we would set up a service where patients who wanted a quick access appointment would be seen, seen by a nurse practitioner because that we felt was a good match between what the patient wanted and the skill uh competency and level of the person seeing them um general practitioners were seeing the more complex cases and this would be something where you would be pre-booked it would always be at least 15 minutes um, if not you know half an hour um, and, and the thing is you know my practice found that that worked tremendously we actually won the national patient safety award in the, you know, 2017 i think it was for that so um so you know we'd, we'd, we'd actually shown that 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 wasn't another way you could organize things i i i think that um it's almost like an, a, a kind of um, a viral idea that, that's, that's grabbed hold of the NHS that I think has, 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 you know, people are so busy firefighting that they think just trying to get the numbers and the volumes through is the is the way to try and address healthcare issues. And I would say that's completely wrong. It's better to think in terms of type one and type two problem solving. You know, type one problem solving solves the immediate issue. Type two problem solving really gets the underlying reasons why the patient's presented. Now that takes time, and it takes a lot of time investment to, to start off with, but it ends up being far more time efficient going down because a patient feels they've really been listened to and heard, their problems have been addressed. And you find that typically after a few consultations like that, um, you, you know, you, Bob's your uncle and, 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 and all is right in the world. The patients love it. Um, and, and I think the UK has maybe lost, a lot of the UK has lost sight of that. Um, the good news in Australia is because of the way that we're funded, I can give patients the time that, that, that the problem needs, that the patient needs, and actually start to work that way. The difference in Australia is quite quite marked, isn't it? Because because it's a free fee-for-service system, you can spend a little bit longer with patients uh, because, and then charge them accordingly and be rewarded accordingly for the time you spend. The, the other side of that coin is that you cannot service the same numbers of people. I mean, in the NHS, when you've got a list of patients you're looking after, you don't finish work until you've seen everybody who needs help that day. And in fact, your nurse practitioner can see the patient because it doesn't matter that she's seen the patient, the, the payment structures are not designed that way. Nurse practitioners cannot see patients here independently without it costing the practice money. So how did you reconcile that when you got to Australia? Um, so in Australia, we, um, so we, we, we use nurse practitioners that are predominantly in aged care. Um, and I think what, what we're doing there is, um, you know, the nurse practitioner having very much a set 
the set number of tasks that we're asking you know her or him to to perform um and it's it's almost like having your you know a house officer who will take a history do some initial examinations beforehand and then then i'll go in and we'll have a joint consultation with the patient um and that way um you know, we're, we're finding that the you know the, the the patient's needs can be met. I can make good use of skill mix, um, and really, my my time is is spent on productive tasks. So the nurse practitioner, for example, will will collect together and collate a lot of the information that's needed prior to my seeing the patient. Um, they will go around and talk to you know, family members. Maybe they'll talk to members of staff. So really, it's it, it, it's like it's condensed, um, targeted, just in time information. That means that when I go and see the patient, it's all being prepared. And also, the nurse practitioner will you know top hand tell. So in terms of the handover, she'll make sure that that information is disseminated out then to all the, the people that need to to be involved. And we seem to be getting very good feedback for that. Um, and also that that time, you know, in terms of my time, I can sort of, you know, bill accordingly for the, for the time I've spent. And I'm just more effective and efficient than I would be if I was just working on my own. And that certainly fits with the idea that you are working to serve the patients as a specialist, as an expert. But when I think about it, you know, when patient presents with minor, so-called minor illness and you're spending the time and you work out, that this upper respiratory tract infection is the end of the line for somebody who's unhappy in their job or in an unhappy relationship or whatever it happens to be. That's very, very valuable information, which in this instance you won't be getting because your nurse practitioner might be collecting that information and not necessarily something she, the patient will want shared with you. Do you think that you lose something when that happens? I think there's potential for doing that, Moyes, absolutely. Um, so I think the solution is to be cognizant of that potential lack of information. And and I think what I certainly aim to do is, um, firstly, in, in discussions with the nurse practitioners I work with, um, you know, encouraging them um, you know, to, to ask about mental health. In fact, if I think about one of my colleagues, he's, he's far better at mental health than I, I am, you know, um, because he, he, he's got a real passion for that. Um, and we'll often spend time really dig, digging into some, some of those aspects um, and, and checking if the patient's comfortable. Um, an interesting fact here, I think, is probably because, um, you know, some of the nurse practitioners, they come from the same, you know, cultural background as my patients as well. You know, so it's in, in, in this sense, it's, it's the same socioeconomic group. They, I, t- I tend to find that they use imagery language um, that, that just fits with that, that particular background. And then probably they, they get, you know, Things that, that I might, you know, it might take me longer to, to actually try and try and understand. The second thing is, I, I think, you know, just very much, you know, um, you know, you 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 build up a sixth sense, don't you, in in, in general practice, uh, around, you know, what's the feel of this patient? How how do you know what, what are they telling me? But also, how are they telling me this? And I think very much acting on those instincts, um, you know, those those um, that, that tacit knowledge, I think, that's present in the room. And trying to make sure that that's that's acted upon, um, but but you're completely right. It, it is um, it is it is a potential pitfall. Um, but but maybe this is where reflection and reflectiveness is, is is key to to what we do. Okay, so you're not one of the the many doctors who left the UK to find uh, greener pastures, but there are many who have. What do you think it is that drove them to leave the country? Um, so they tell me um, uh, that uh, they feel it's, it, it feels like insatiable demand. I think they work in practices where, you know, they think if they just cycle ever faster, they'll be able to cover more speed, and they find that, that they just don't seem to be getting anywhere. You know, that has a 
has a has a has a, obviously a huge negative impact on on people who fundamentally want to do good in the world. Um, they feel um, that probably the uh, uh, you know the environment is not so conducive to to doctors and medicine. So you know the, the tabloid press, in particular in the UK, you know, you know exercise you know gets involved in doctor bashing an awful lot. Politicians, dare I say, um, have done as well. Um, and I think that that whole negative environment starts to lead people to think that you know life's got to be better than this. Better than this. Um, you know, some a lot of my friends will just struggle on in the system. I think they're, you know they're, they're, they're valiant, and others will just decide that it's time to to leave. And for some of that, that means emigrating to Australia or Canada or, or elsewhere in the world. And and yet, when you come to Australia, and I know I speak as associate dean of a medical school, it's it's unlikely that you'll find the majority of the class saying, "I'd like to do general practice." Many of them still want to do to be specialists, despite the fact that the majority of healthcare in this country is provided by general practitioners and in primary care. What do you think it is about our primary care here that needs to be improved? <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I was, I was very conscious in the UK of, um, you know, feeling, you know, as a GP, you know, I, I'm a specialist like anybody else. You know, I'm, I'm no better than, but I'm no worse than anybody, you know, cardiologist or respiratory medicine. You know, we've all got a part to play. Um, and uh, and very much that was the, um, you know, I, I, I was involved in uh, management and leadership uh, courses for, for all doctors. And certainly that was the, the approach that, that I had with them. I was quite surprised in coming here. I, I, I'd still sometimes get that that slight um, ego, dare I say it, from, from, from doctors from other specialities, which is which I, I, I find amusing. Um, I think that's something to do with some of the reforms that happened in the UK, for example, um, you know, putting GPs in charge of budgets. I, I think that really did help to, 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 to push up the, uh, um, you know, the, the prominence of general practice um, and also things, um, uh, you know, p- probably are, are, are kind of in the Royal College, BMA, and various other organisations. Yes, they could have done more, but I think some of what they they, they did around, you know, just just talking about um, general practice specialty was was useful. I think uh, Australia, in that sense, seems uh, it reminds me of being back in the UK about fifteen, maybe twenty years ago. Um, so certainly, you know, our Royal College has been very much pushing the idea of you know general practice as a speciality. Um, I do notice the language changing about people talking about general practitioners and other specialists, um, which I think is good. Um, I, I think it's probably, um, we're probably at a t- tipping point because um, I, I certainly, I've, I've um, had an opportunity now to start to see some of the medical students come through. And you know, some of them are starting to talk about general practices as a speciality they want to move into. And I think once you get to that tipping point of doctors, you know, who could have chosen any speciality, but choose general practice, it's, it's not a default, it's actually a positive choice. Um, you know, you start to find that the, the status rises. Um, and, and I think that, that that's probably what will happen here. Now, you've had a number of other roles, uh, Jag, in terms of leadership and in terms of innovation. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Certainly, yes. Um, so I, I got very involved with um, leadership and management. Um, certainly what, what I found was one of the reasons I get frustrated uh, working in the health service was nothing to do with the lack of medical knowledge. It was just having a different skill set, really, um, around leadership and management, which I think is essential uh, for being able to, to affect change. Um, and interestingly, that's that's something I find um, 
uh, isn't so so commonly um, uh, even recognised. I mean, maybe maybe at the level of unconscious incompetence here in, in Australia, that a lot of doctors don't even realise that those those skills are important. Um, so, so that 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 was 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 um, transformation, I think, for me personally, but also being involved in you know in, in, in conducting that education. Um, and I also um, was involved in doing some of the teaching and training for that in doctors in Latin America, particularly in Chile. You know, who you know, Chile particularly is a country where they're starting to understand that you know, uh, doctors, healthcare professionals, generally being involved in the issue of management is essential to um, <coughs> service redesign. I've also been working in um, healthcare technology, so the ideas of Clayton Christensen disruptive technology really interests me. Um, and uh, you know, I, I heard had the opportunity to hear him speak, and I got very, very fired up um, and thought that it would be interesting to get involved as a doctor working with healthcare technology companies that wanted to try and almost understand how how my tribe, our tribe in healthcare, works and thinks. And um, so, I, so I support various um, you know SMEs to to try and sort of work. Uh, in healthcare, um, having had a background of working for large organisations such as British Telecom um, in their healthcare technology offerings. So where where do you from here? Where where do you see yourself in the next five years? You have the enormous advantage of having worked in the NHS, which is really the home of primary care general practice, and most people would agree with that. And here you are in Australia, where we are in a state of flux. Um, where do you see yourself fitting into that and taking yourself in the next five years? Thanks. <laughs> well, I, I think these initial sort of two or three years have just been busy settling down really as, as a person, as a family, and getting a house sorted and you know, the kids settled. Um, I, I think it's um, it's it's more, I think, for me, a question of, it goes back to being a teenager again and just wanting to be of service and uh, just seeing where I can slot in. And, and I found that, you know, maybe keeping that mindset um, has has meant that as opportunities arise, I'll maybe put myself forward, you know, um, just to see if I might be of, of, of use. And, and opportunities, opportunities seem to have risen. So I've, I've got involved in our Royal College over here uh, around quality improvement. Um, I've started to support a couple of um, Australian health tech companies with their technology offerings, and also very much as a clinician, um, you know, uh, focusing on aged care. But an opportunity to meet colleagues um, who are trying to do something interesting in this space, and um, you know, trying to look at a more intelligent, um, caring way of being able to to engage uh, with uh, elderly care residents of aged care facilities and also their families as well. So I think if I can sort of try and work on these, I'll, I'll be starting to do something around what, what, what it is I think needs to happen in the world. Where do you think Australia will be in the next five years in primary care? Do you think we'll go down the NHS route or do you think we'll go down some, we don't, we'll follow our own path? Yeah, I, um, I, I, I probably am of the mindset, Moise, that um, um, having worked in both systems, um, I, I am an optimist. <laughs> I tend to think there's always a way of being able to work a healthcare. You know, rules are there, but rules can be sort of melded and, you know, melded and, and sort of worked on in a way that you can still get your core purpose done. So I felt in the UK my core purpose was served and I feel my core purpose is served in Australia. So I, I probably take that 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 tag. And I think that's where leadership and management skills and, and attitudes can be helpful because it allows you to navigate a particular system. Yes, it can be easier or harder depending on the particular setup, the context you work in. But I think it's never an excuse for not being able to, to, to do what needs to be done. Um, 
in, in terms of your question around Australia, um, that, that that that's that's very difficult to say. Um, you know, obviously we may tip into um, a, an item of sorry, not an item, so say a capitation-based system similar to the UK um, that could could have advantages. I think a capitation-based system uh, focuses people on prevention. You know, I, I love that idea of considering any patient consultation a critical incident because what, what, what could we have done to, to make sure the patient was so well they would come nowhere near a healthcare system and I, and I like that I like that way of thinking and I think uh, uh, you know a, a, a capitation-based system allows you to think that way so that, that that is advantageous flip side is of course you know people can just feel pressurized into trying to just get through through volumes they've done in the UK so I, I think I think Australia maybe it's a hybrid model as we've, we've we played with maybe for chronic diseases where we know that there's that component maybe we use capitation for you know, patients with chronic obstructory pulmonary disease diabetes etc in all those chronic diseases we use a a, a fee-for-service uh, model for for everything else and maybe the hybrid is the best maybe that's the way of going the best of both worlds maybe australia will trail base and become number one rather than number two in the world uh, yeah, we won't we won't go into make Australia first. We won't we won't use that phrase. <laughs> but for now, Jang, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. A pleasure as always. Take care. Thank, thank you. you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at www.journalofhealthdesign.com.